Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. We're, we're coming to the, to the end of, of Mark uh, very quickly, uh, at least at the end of chapter 15. Uh, we'll begin in verse 42 and, and in verse 47. Uh, let us give attention to God's Word. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph uh, bought a linen, excuse me, a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that he had um, been cut out, that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. Thus ends a reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much as we come this morning before you and uh, to listen to you as you speak to us today. We pray that your word would be faithfully preached and we, we just ask for your spirit to help us to hear. Lord, there's so many distractions, so many things that are on our minds. We know that Satan doesn't want us to hear your word. We see from the parable of the sower that the birds are there to snatch the word away, that it would not take root and grow and bear fruit. But we pray, Lord, that your word would more than just take root, that it would uh, produce a fruit to your glory. Uh, we ask in your name. Amen. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Kids, do you know where that's from? From the Apostles' Creed, right? We, we say that once a month whenever we, we uh, have communion. And, and while the series that we're not preaching is not on, it's not on the Apostles' Creed, but on Mark's Gospel, we have looked at each one of those phrases as we've come to the end of Mark. And today we're going to be looking at the last one, Jesus was buried. Now that's not something that we emphasize very often as Christians, is it not? We oftentimes want to focus upon Christ's death upon the cross, and, and rightly so, because Christ's death was of utmost importance. But Oftentimes, there's, there's other teachings, there's other doctrines, such as the burial of Christ or the ascension of Christ or things that we sort of minimalize, and maybe not consciously, but, but we do nonetheless. But that's interesting that we do that, because if you look at the gospel accounts, the burial of Jesus, uh, the gospels actually devote 26 verses to the burial of Jesus, which might surprise you, I don't know. And even the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to the different churches, as he's writing to the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in a chapter that we would oftentimes title the resurrection chapter, uh, this is what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul is talking about what's of most importance. He's talking about the gospel. 
And this is what he said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. You see, the burial of Jesus is the second of three major emphasis that Paul makes regarding what is the gospel. He talks about Christ dying, that he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. Now, why, why is the burial of Jesus so important? Well, well, there may be many answers to that question, but let me just suggest to you one very important one is that the burial of Jesus stresses that he actually died. Now, I know that may sound very simplistic, uh, but it's very important. If Jesus had not been buried, and then it would be possible for skeptics to argue that Jesus didn't really die, that he merely appeared to have died, that maybe he only fell into an unconscious state on the cross. And when they took him down from the cross, somehow he was resuscitated. And so Jesus didn't really die. But with a true burial, a resuscitation was not possible. And so I want us to look at the text today and, and see what it says about the burial of Jesus and also the implications for our own lives as well. Uh, as Steve Lawson put it, he goes, the burial is something of the black velvet backdrop for the diamond of the resurrection to be placed upon. Don't you love that? Uh, the burial is something of the black velvet backdrop for the diamond of the resurrection to be placed upon. You know, it just makes the resurrection so much more glorious. And so I want us to look at our text today, and I actually am I'm deeply indebted to Steve Lawson for the outline I'm going to be using today to share with you. But as we look at our text, we see a number of things. First of all, in verse 42, we see the precise time of, of Christ's, uh, of his death and his burial. Uh, look at verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Now, then the Sabbath was on Saturday. So when it says the day before the day of preparation, it's obviously speaking of Friday. And it says on the evening. Now, in the Old Testament, the evening could uh, be either an early evening from 3 to 6 p.m. I know we would call that afternoon. But in the Old Testament uh, times, that was uh, early evening. And then there was later evening that was 6 p.m. onward. And, and the reason why this is so important is that it really documents the day and the time that, that Jesus died. That, that he was uh, dead shortly after 3 p.m. Now, um, I know that oftentimes if you watch murder mystery shows, they sort of mark the day and the time. They want to find out when that happens. Well, with Jesus, we don't have to guess. We, we know that, that it happened. And, and it happened uh, before the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath would start at 6 p.m., actually, on Friday night, okay, or sunset. And it would go through 6 p.m. or through sunset on Saturday evening. And so as we sort of look at the timetable that we've been looking at as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, is that Christ was crucified at 9 a.m. on Friday and, and he gave up his spirit at 3 p.m. on Friday. He died around 3 p.m. on Friday. So he, he, he died on Friday, he was buried on Friday, and he rose from the dead on Sunday. Now, 
it's it's interesting. Jesus predicted all of this ahead of time. If you if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter twelve, twelve Matthew twelve, verse forty, uh, we read these words of Jesus. For for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, God is a very precise God. He is a very he is very precise in terms of his words and, and what he tells us and what he says God does. The Old Testament reminds us God is not a liar. What he says is true. He's not only precise in his word though, he's precise in his <coughs> providence and his care of his creation. And he's very precise regarding the events and circumstances in our lives. And, and this should bring us great comfort because there are times when there is much chaos in our life. I mean, at least I'm guessing that, you know, when church is over with, uh, there's a lot of kids that are running back and forth and sort of going everywhere. I think it's a glorious thing as a pastor, okay, to have all the kids. But I see all that and I just think, wow, your lives must have a lot of chaos in them, at least some of you, that, that, that have all these kids in your household. But, but even if you don't have kids, there's just times in our lives where circumstances are difficult with work and all the other responsibilities. And then oftentimes there are different trials and difficulties that, that come into our lives. And so there are times when situations seem to, if they're out of control and out of hand. And, and how many times do you find yourself where you make a decision or you do something where you feel like you've made some kind of mistake and you're sort of beating yourself up over the head about it and you just say, oh, if I had only not done this or if I would have only done that, then I wouldn't be in the situation that I am in. Has anybody here ever struggled with that? You don't have to raise your hand. I would have to raise my hand if, if we were. But, you know, the reality is the whole situation, whatever situation we go through, is in the hands of the Lord. And what an encouragement that should be to you and to me that we serve a very precise God who had his son crucified at the very right time. You see, there's a, a sense of acceptance with many of the events of life when we realize that we rest in the reality that we serve a very precise God whose timing is absolutely perfect. The second thing I want us to see is the prominent disciple in verse 43. Notice uh, that we read for the first time about a man named Joseph. And this is Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Now Mark tells us a little bit about Joseph here. He's a respected member of the council, and the council we've seen earlier is the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling body of the Jews, sort of like the Supreme Court, in essence. They, what they say happens. These were 70 men who ruled over the nation of, of Israel. And he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. In other words, he was a man, an honorable man. He was a, a reputable man. He was most likely a powerful man, a very prominent man at least. And, and he stood out in the Sanhedrin. He was very well respected. Now, 
if, if you've ever been in a meeting, which I'm sure every one of us has, whether that's, you know, a family meeting in your home or whether it's a business meeting or a meeting at school, wherever it may be, you know, you may have been in a situation where during this meeting there's some kind of discussion that goes on and things get sort of dicey and people are getting very emotional about the topic that's that's at hand and there's all this back and forth and maybe people are getting, like I said, very emotionally invested in the discussion. And then some wiser person, somebody who is well-respected by the, the group that is meeting stands up and sort of gives their thoughts on the issue. And oftentimes what happens? Isn't it true that oftentimes then everybody's opinion is swayed? Sometimes it just shuts down discussion. You're just like, oh, so-and-so said that. Yeah, let's do that. And Joseph was that kind of guy, that he could stand up a meeting and do that. Now, he was from Arimathea, which was about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was the town from which Samuel the prophet came. And Matthew, in his gospel, tells us that Joseph was a rich man. He's a wealthy man. And, and here in Mark's gospel, we see that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And really, that doesn't mean anything more than he had a, a messianic hope. He was looking for the coming Messiah. So nothing really super unusual, at least in terms of a Jew. There, there were some Jews that were probably looking more intently for the Messiah. Others, maybe sort of casually, some really not that conscious of the Messiah. So yes, there's different degrees that people were waiting for the Messiah, but he was one who was more intentionally waiting for the coming Messiah. <clears throat> now, John tells us in John chapter 19, verse 38, you're, you're welcome to turn there if you'd like, John 1938. Uh, John says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He tells us that Joseph was actually a disciple of Christ. He had, he had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he was a secret disciple. Now, uh, you have to understand, I mean, I think it's very easy for us to, to cast aspersions on Joseph and to think, a secret disciple? How cowardly! <coughs> And, you know, maybe, maybe that's the case, but, you know, let's reserve judgment for right now. But you have to understand, he was a very prominent man. Now, I'm not excusing him, but I do want us to understand where he's coming from. He's a prominent man, and if the word got out that he was a follower of Jesus, it would cost him a lot, maybe everything. Not only would he most likely lose his position on the Sanhedrin, but he likely would have been kicked out of the synagogue. Uh, this would have severed possibly family relationships, definitely business relationships. His favor with, with people, uh, would, even the common people would have been damaged because here he is sort of backing a failed Messiah. And, and so you see Joseph and where he's at that he's fearing people more than he fears God because of what it could cost him. Now, he's not the only one. If you, if, you're, if you have your finger still in the book of John, look over to chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 42. Let me read these words. Uh, 
you'll see that the, uh, Joseph isn't the only one that struggled with this. He goes, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, that is, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, we do know that not only with this passage, but other passages of Scripture as well, that there were others who also believed in Jesus. Can you, can you think of someone, kids, who, who was on the Sanhedrin that, that, that also believed in Jesus? We know this from John chapter 3. Do you remember the man Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night to talk with him? And, and that's why he came, because this would have cost Nicodemus a lot if he had, um, if he had, it had become known that he was following Christ. And so these men remained in the shadow for a long time as, as secret disciples. Now, like I said, it's so easy for us to cast aspersions on, on someone like this and to say, how dare they be so cowardly? But isn't it interesting how little things change over time? Isn't it so easy how we all want the approval of our peers? How, how we want the affirmation of people that we look up to? How, how we all want the applause of the world? How many times has there been something that's going on at school or at work or maybe in our neighborhood where people were attacking Christ or, or Christian, Christianity or the church and we said nothing? It's not that we deny Jesus. We just didn't say anything. Maybe because we were afraid of what they would think about us and maybe what it would cost us and would we maybe be cast out of the, the group of friends that we liked or would it possibly harm our possibility of a promotion. What happens when we live as a, as a secret disciple is that it has a stifling effect on our walk with the Lord. And th there are many times when we have to make choices between gaining people's approval or, or living for God's approval. We must never forget the words that Jesus spoke in, in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, where Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But... Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And that's what was taking place here in the Sanhedrin with these men. But what's so significant about Mark's gospel is that this is the time when Joseph is going public. He's coming out of the closet. Maybe don't use that term in the way that we oftentimes use it in our culture today, but he's coming out of the closet in terms of his faith. And he's, he's taking a stand and he's saying, do I follow Jesus? Yes. There's a line been drawn and he's stepping across that line on the side of Jesus. And he's doing that as, as he comes to ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But I want us to understand uh, sort of the circumstances that are happening. This, this is pretty intense that he would do this. Because this is a time when even Jesus' disciples have fled because they were scared of the authorities. Matter of fact, Mark tells us there was one young man 
that got really gutsy and he actually decided to follow Jesus after they arrested him. But they grabbed him. Remember, kids? They grabbed him. And what did he do? He pulled away. And when he pulled away, they pulled his clothes off and he ran away naked. Okay? He was that terrified of being caught. But he tried to follow Jesus, but he couldn't do it. But that's where people were. So they just sort of backed off from Jesus. Peter did go follow Jesus, but... You know, he stayed with the servants and he ended up denying Jesus, that he even knew Jesus. And it's in this time, I mean, and you think about it, just even after Christ's crucifixion and before the resurrection, where were the disciples? They were in a room with locked doors. Why? Because they were afraid of the authorities. And it was during this time that Joseph says, I want to be marked with Christ. I want people to know that I am his follower. Now, can you think of a more dangerous time to identify with Jesus than just minutes after the crucifixion? And, and it was a crucifixion that was instigated by the group of people that you belong to where you were influential. That's a dangerous place to be. Talk about standing up for your faith, but that's what Joseph did. And, and I want us to see how bold and costly this step is that Joseph takes asking for Jesus' body. Uh, honestly, we should all want to be like Joseph, at least at this point in his life, not as a private or secret disciple, but as one who stands forward. And it should be our prayer, uh, Lord, I don't want to be a secret disciple. I, I want everyone to know that I follow you no matter what it costs. And I just want to ask you, is that where your heart is this morning? Is that what your heart's desire is, is to follow Jesus no matter what? Notice what Mark says about Joseph in the second part of verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, can you just sort of feel that, what he's saying about taking courage? Do you know what it means to take courage? Have you, have you ever been in a situation where you were sort of afraid but you took courage. Maybe you, you, were, you were preaching to yourself. Okay, this is what God's word says. I'm terrified, but okay, Lord, I, I'm going to do this. And, and you're looking to the Lord for strength. Well, Joseph knows what that's like. And he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, I, th I think you have to understand when someone is crucified, typically what happens to the body is this. They just leave the body on the cross. The birds, and kids, I don't mean to be disgusting, but the birds just sort of come and pick away at the body until it's gone. And it just sort of hangs there until it just sort of falls off. If they need that cross, they may take the body down so they can do the next crucifixion and throw the body into a common community grave uh, for, for criminals. However... Family members and friends and people that are close to someone who's been crucified can come and request the body. doesn't mean they'll necessarily get it, but oftentimes they would. And so Joseph is asking for the body, and in so doing, he is saying, I am close to Jesus. Jesus is important to me. May I have his body. But he asks, because as the gospel writer states, he asked at this particular point in time because the gospels tell us that 
the Jews didn't want the bodies to stay on the cross. It, it may take days for a crucifixion to run its course and for someone to die, and then it would be hanging there for a long time just so people could see and be reminded you don't want to rebel against the Romans. But the Jews said, look, this is the Sabbath. We cannot let them hang on a, on a tree. And so they wanted them taken down right away. And so Joseph knew he needed to come to Pilate quickly so that he could get that body. Also, Joseph knew, like the Jews did as well, what the law of God says. Have you guys ever thought about this? Um, it's just something that's sort of built into us, or at least it used to be. I don't know if it still is or not. But in Western culture, uh, there's just something inside of us that says you cannot leave a dead body unburied, right? You know what I'm talking about? That even if you were in war with someone and you and your enemies were dead before you, there would be something in you that just says, I need to bury that person. Um, it's just sort of built into the fabric. That's the way it was with the Jewish people. But it wasn't just sort of a sentiment um, or a cultural thing amongst them. It actually comes from God's law. If you would, look to Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21, 22. God's word says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. And so there's, there's a sense in which there is a, a respect there because God has told us not to leave that person hanging on a tree. So Joseph... Um, as he, as he requests Jesus' body, he doesn't do so just out of sentimentality or because, you know, he liked his master, but he did so out of obedience to God's word. And, and as I said, there's sort of an urgency here because this is after 3 o'clock. Most scholars think it's around 4 o'clock by this time. The Sabbath starts at what time, kids? 6 p.m. So there's just a couple hours here. And so uh, Joseph has to come. He has to get permission to get the body. He has to get the body down. He has to uh, wash that body. He has to prepare it for burial. And then he has to put that body in the tomb all before 6 o'clock, before the Sabbath comes. The next thing I want us to see is, is the perplexed ruler in verse 44 and 45. So Joseph is before Pilate. He's requested the body. Verse 44 says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Now, surprised is what you would think it would mean. It means to be to, to, to marvel, to be astonished, to be taken back. In other words, Pilate was shocked that Jesus was already dead. Oftentimes, like I said, crucifixions take days, at least hours, but, death, but sometimes days. It's not uncommon, maybe for three days before someone dies. And so Pilate was shocked to think, this man, I just crucified him at 9 a.m., and it's 3 o'clock already. It's three o'clock and he's already, he's dead. He just, he just couldn't believe it. And so he had to ask uh, if, if this was really true. Now, because of the circumstances here with this being the Sabbath and these prisoners being hung on the cross, uh, most likely they would not have died by six o'clock. Could have been, but not likely. And so the practice for the Romans was to break the legs of the, the prisoners. 
And that way, they couldn't push themselves up on their legs to catch another breath. And it basically just caused them to suffocate sooner. And so the Romans did that, but when they came to Christ, the Bible tells us he is already dead. He had, he had given up his spirit. He had given his life willingly. His life wasn't taken away from him, but he gave his life for you and I. And so Pilate was surprised. And so he calls in the centurion in verse 44. It's the same centurion that we read about in verse 39, by the way. Uh, the one who said, truly, this man was the son of God. You see, the centurion was a Roman officer who was over the crucifixion. Centurion literally means leader of a hundred. Okay, so he was the, the head guy, and he recognized that Jesus was the son of God. And Pilate asked him if Jesus were really dead. And, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Now, this, uh, this whole interchange with Joseph and Pilate was actually prophesied about in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. We read in Isaiah 53, 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in him. And so it was prophesied of the Messiah 700 years earlier that there would be this association with a rich man in his death. And that's exactly what happened. Now, I think it's interesting that sometimes liberals want to say, people who don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, will say, you know, there was really no, no such thing as fulfilled prophecy. Basically, what happened was, is there were all these things written down in the Old Testament back here, right, that the Messiah was supposed to do. And all Jesus did was he was a good reader. He read all those things, and he fulfilled all those things. And so that's how the, old, that's how the prophecies were fulfilled. Well, my question to them is, how did he do that when he was dead? <laughs> it doesn't really fit that even after he's dead, he's fulfilling prophecies. Why? Brothers and sisters, we serve a precise God. We serve a God who is carrying out his word. He's not just a, a casual observer of history. He's not just a deistic God that, that sort of created everything and then he steps back and he's just sort of letting it run for itself. No, he is a God who has the whole world in his hands. He is a God that every moment of every day, God is in control of every molecule of the universe. It is his invisible hand that is controlling the circumstances between Joseph and Pilate to bring about the fulfillment of his word. Now, I want you to notice something, if you would. Look at verse 43. When, when Joseph comes, I'm sort of switching gears here. When, jo when Joseph comes, he asked for the body of Jesus. But what does uh, Pilate say in verse 45? He said, I will grant you the what? The corpse of Jesus. You see, Pilate acknowledges that Jesus is dead. He's not just unconscious. He's dead. He's a corpse. The centurion says he's dead. Now, the Romans were, like, brilliant at crucifixion. I know that sounds like a weird way to put such a graphic, awful thing. But they had perfected this art amazing. And so they knew when a person was dead. And not only that, but even Joseph would soon interact with the body of Jesus. And, and if he were conscious of the fact that Jesus was still alive, he would not have prepared his body for burial because that surely would have killed him. 
And this was his Lord whom he, he loved so much. And so there's any number of people who intimately testified to the fact that Jesus was dead and they were burying him. Now let's talk about the burial. Verse 46, the proper burial. We see the great love for Jesus that Joseph had in the burial he gave him. Verse 46, And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, John tells us in John chapter 19, verse 38, if I can look back there again, uh, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so Joseph gets the body of Jesus. Most likely Nicodemus is helping. These men are wealthy, so it's very likely they had servants that actually were doing the work, maybe pulling Christ down from the cross. And they would have washed the body, sort of like we see in Acts 9.37. Uh, and then they would wrap the body tightly in strips of, of a linen cloth, okay? Uh, it talks here about uh, a linen shroud. Uh, Joseph was wealthy enough, he could afford such a thing, okay? And so he gives Jesus this linen shroud, he wraps him up, and as they're wrapping them, they would put layers of, of myrrh and aloes and spices to suppress the smell of decay as it happens. They use like 75 to 100 pounds of these spices. And, and of course, that didn't happen at the cross. This would have happened outside the tomb in the nearby garden, as John tells us in John 19, 41. And, and finally, they laid Jesus' body in the tomb. And this was Joseph's tomb. And this was not a cave, like a man-made cave. This was actually a tomb that Joseph had spent the money to have this thing chiseled out of a rock. And then they made this room type thing. And then there was a shelf in the room and they would lay the body on the shelf. So I want you to get the idea and understand that this was a very costly endeavor. And, and we read in the other gospels, actually this was a tomb that had never been used before. Now you say, well, yeah, I hope not. You know, we don't share tombs, okay? They shared tombs. Okay, in the sense that maybe after someone had died, they may get a tomb and they may take the remains that are there and put them in a shallow tomb and bury them and then they would be placed in this tomb. But this one had never been used. And uh, then they rolled this huge stone over the front of this. Now, oftentimes they would dig like a, a trench or a ditch there. And so the stone wouldn't just be in front of the entrance. It would actually be sort of down inside the ground where it was sort of set. And then eventually we read that the Romans would come and they would seal it shut with their official seal to make sure that no one had messed with it. And, and, and Joseph does all this because he's, first of all, motivated by the word of God. But you know what? He could have just taken Jesus' body and put it in a shallow grave and he would have fulfilled God's word. But there's more here than just obedience to God's word. There is a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives Jesus the best. He doesn't spare expense. He gives up his own grave in order to give it to Jesus. 
And he does all of that for what? A dead master. Do you see such love that he has for someone who's dead? Now, we don't know what Joseph was thinking, but I'm guessing he probably wasn't thinking Jesus was going to rise again from the dead, which he did, by the way. But he wasn't thinking that, I'm guessing. And if he would do that for a dead master, how much more ought you and I to do it for our, Savior, our risen Savior and Lord, right? You see, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. Do you realize how much you have been forgiven? Think about that. Don't be too quick. You know, I think I'm coming to realize the older I get that the difficulty of those who have grown up in the church is not so much to believe that Jesus died on the cross for us. But I think it's more to understand how much we really needed it. How great of sinners we truly are. And the more we come to understand the depth of our sin and the great love that was shown to us and the great forgiveness that was, for, that was given to us, then it's so much easier for us to love Jesus. So much easier for us to sacrifice and to give all for him. That brings me to my final point, the persevering women in verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Josie saw where he was laid. Now, I love this verse uh, because it reveals the undying loyalty of these women even after Jesus' death. You know, if you look at Mark, uh, actually if you sort of skim through chapter 15 and 16, these women just pop up everywhere. Uh, look at uh, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance. This is, this is at the crucifixion, okay? The disciples had left. They had scattered, okay? And so here are these women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joses and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. You see, these women loved Jesus, and he had, he had done so much for them. And then we see now, here again, this was not a good time to be a follower of Jesus. You definitely didn't want to identify with Jesus. And yet they, they wanted to know exactly where he was going to be buried. And so they did. They followed. And it was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And then we see in chapter 16, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene Mary, the mother of James... And Salome bought spices so that they might go and they might anoint him. Here again, they show up again, these, these, these godly women. And part of that group was Mary Magdalene. This was a woman who had had seven demons cast out of her. She had lived a life of debauchery and she was forgiven in Jesus Christ. You can imagine the love that she had for Jesus because she knew the depth of her sin. Now, as I'm here this morning, my purpose is not to lay a guilt trip on you. How much do you love Jesus? How much do you love Jesus? Because I would think all of us would say, not enough. I think we would recognize that. Rather, what I want you to see is 
that as we live in the reality of the glory of Christ, when we live in the reality of the love of Jesus on Tuesday and the mercy of Christ on Wednesday and the grace of God in our lives on Thursday and throughout the week, that it will melt down our hearts, our minds, our desires, and our wills to love and to serve Jesus rather than serve our own lives. We are to live our faith from the inside out rather than the outside in. If we are a person that's here today and you're just trying to follow the rules of what the Bible says and you're just trying to be an obedient person, yes, yeah, it's just not going to happen. What has to happen is you have to have a new heart that God has given to you and that you have followed the Lord Jesus Christ. I like what uh, one person said. They said, only when Christians ignore the gospel and the beauty of the Savior that lies at its heart do they find Christianity to be drudgery. Only when Christians ignore the gospel and the beauty of the Savior that lies at its heart do they find Christianity to be drudgery. If you're here today and you just your Christian life is like blah, it may be that you're just trying to keep rules. It may be that you've forgotten the gospel and what Christ has done for you. And I just encourage you to turn back to him and to see the glory of Christ and to be reminded from his word of his love and his mercy and his grace and let that deal with your heart. Ask for forgiveness for the sins that you have committed and ask the Lord to change you from the inside out to love him more. You see, it was Jesus who said in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And, and as, as we live in the presence of Christ and as the Holy Spirit indwells us, as we're reading his word, then, then Christ changes our hearts. That our food, our nourishment is to do his will and to accomplish his work. That it's in us. You see, it is this same Jesus who lives in us to change us to serve God because we love him. In the same way that, that a moth is, is drawn to light, so the love that Christ has shown draws our hearts to love and to serve him more. Mary Magdalene understood this. And we can know this in Christ as well. Well, there's so much more that could be said about the burial. Let me just close with this if I could. Turn over, if you would, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. As you... As you think about uh, the burial and, and why is this so important. Paul says in Romans 6 verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, if you are here today and you are a Christian, as Christians, we have been buried with Christ in our old way of life. That is what Christ has done in us. And if, if we keep returning to our sin, that is not Christ in us, but us like a dog returning to its vomit. You see, in Christ, 
we really have died to sin. That doesn't mean that we'll be sinless, we'll never sin again. But in Christ, we really have died to sin and to our former manner of life. We don't want to sin. We might find ourselves sinning, but we don't want to. Uh, sin has that appeal. I know it, it can, Satan can use that to seek, to, to, to draw us in. But as we understand our struggle and our sin and we are looking to our Savior daily, we see that temptation for what it is. And we seek to look to Christ. What does Romans 6, 1 and 2 said? It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Brothers and sisters, let us remember the burial of Jesus Christ and to be reminded that we have been buried in Him and He has caused us to die to sin and we can look to Him and He will help us to walk in righteousness. Amen? And if we have sinned and we are here today and we feel the condemnation of that sin to be reminded that there is forgiveness in Jesus. We never can out-sin His grace. Amen. Let's bow our heads as we meditate upon this passage and the things that said. Just, just take a few moments, silently pray to the Lord in, in response to the word that you've heard this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for your wonderful grace that, that you showed us each and every day. We thank you, Lord, for your burial to show that you have truly risen from the dead. You are a, a glorious Savior today that's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, as we live our lives this day, we, we don't leave this place alone with our struggles with sin, with our, our fears, with our anxieties, with maybe even the depression that we're struggling with. Oh, but there is hope in you, that you bring us hope, that you have delivered us from these things. You have given us your promises, that you are a God who is precise, and your word is true and you are with us, not only in every circumstance, but you are guiding the way in those circumstances. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, help us to see the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that there be those that don't know you this morning, that they might know that this hope can be theirs as well. As a matter of fact, you call them to come to you to have their sins taken care of, wiped out, forgiven, to be given a new heart, a new start over, a new nature that they could live, God, in obedience to you. We thank you so much for such glorious hope and pray this in your name.
Amen.